Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org slash match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. More than 7 million Floridians are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That's about 33 percent of the state's population. The Biden administration has set a goal that 70 percent of adults in the U.S. receive at least one dose of the COVID vaccine by the 4th of July. For some folks, getting a shot is as easy as walking into the nearest Publix or CVS. But vaccination rates are lower in communities of color, where hesitancy and misinformation persist. Today, we're going to check in on the vaccine rollout in Florida and look at how doctors are working to get more shots into arms. First up, I spoke via Zoom with my colleague, Health News Florida reporter, Stephanie Colombini. Stephanie, starting off, just give us the big picture of where Florida is at right now in terms of getting vaccine shots in in arms to the most people. Millions of people in Florida have been vaccinated at this point, but we are seeing demand dramatically reduce. Um, There are tons of places to get a vaccine in the state, whether it be through a county or at a pharmacy or doctor's office. But in terms of the the demand um, and people wanting to get those shots, it has slowed down quite a bit. Um, And so we're seeing kind of effort shift in terms of vaccinating the masses and everybody lining up for a shot to now these more targeted efforts to really try and encourage those who are left to get their shots. So what do those targeted efforts look like and and who are they targeting? Yeah, um, there's a lot of really fantastic work being done at the community level in underserved areas. I've done some coverage with groups in St. Petersburg who teamed up, uh, health workers and nonprofits uh, who partnered with the county health department to vaccinate homebound residents in St. Pete who might not have been able to get out to any vaccination site. I also shadowed some state canvassers who are you know, hosting mobile sites where they pop up and have a clinic for one day. They usually look at uh, federal data to find neighborhoods that have uh, low incomes, limited access to transportation, limited English proficiency to set up clinics there. And then these canvassers go door to door and go to supermarkets and try and catch people where they are and help them sign up. I shadowed some people who speak Spanish to go in Hispanic neighborhoods. And you know that is vital for people who can't speak English to have someone connect with them in their language and help them navigate these complicated sign-up processes. So there's a lot of work being done in the region. How effective are these, these efforts from what you've seen? You know, I've watched them help people. Uh, you know, they, they got several signups the day I was shadowing them and people going to that clinic. So every person counts. But we are seeing a lot of racial disparities persist throughout this vaccination rollout. Black and Hispanic residents are still being vaccinated at lower rates, rates than whites. Um, I think the Kaiser Family Foundation has been keeping track and their most recent update. I believe white residents in Florida were about twice as likely as black residents to have been 
been vaccinated and one and a half times as likely as Hispanic residents. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and there's people that, you know, have the access to the vaccine, you know, could easily get it, but just are still on the fence in our community, younger residents who maybe feel they don't need the vaccine um, because they might, you know, not feel COVID-19 is as threatening. So there's a lot of outreach campaigns that still need to be done to, to convince people that this does require each and every one of us in order to even come close to reaching, you know, a level of herd immunity, even though public health experts are kind of shying away from that right now. Uh, you've done some reporting on some of the misinformation about vaccines. And later on, we're going to talk to Dr. Kevin Sneed from USF, who you spoke to uh, about this. How much is misinformation, disinformation about the vaccines and what's in the vaccines and how safe they are still a, a factor in terms of hesitancy of people getting these shots? I'd say it's a, a huge problem still, especially, you know, things are just rampant on social media and it's really hard to monitor those posts. Um, I know, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram try and put warnings when something is about COVID-19 in general to make sure people are getting the facts, but it's impossible to control at all. Um, so I would definitely say misinformation is continuing to be a problem and education efforts continue. I mean, Dr. Sneed is doing amazing work, both in terms of education and in terms of improving access to uh, vaccines in the community. Community, but there are others, you know, hosting webinars, having public service campaigns. Um, a lot of the people I talk to say those are all great, the ads and the events, but what it really comes down to is having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and connecting them on a really individual level to hear what their concerns are, what their questions are, and just engaging them, not pressuring them to get the vaccines. Even the canvassers I spoke with said that's a real important element of their mission is we aren't going to stop someone on the street and start harassing them at the back, you know, about the vaccine. If they say, no, I don't want it. You kind of just have to respect their decision. But if even one question is asked about the vaccine or a rumor, you know, expressed, then they, that gate is opened and they can start having that conversation and hopefully change someone's mind. So we went through about a week or so where there was a, a pause in using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because there were some concerns about blood clots appearing in some, some people who received it. How much has that been a, a factor in vaccine hesitancy in Florida? It's hard to say. I think it has definitely played a role. Um, and, you know, it can freak people out, even though these blood clots are extremely rare. You don't want to be that person. But demand was already slowing before the pause. So whether it just has continued to slow because more people are getting vaccinated or because people were worried um, and, you know, sort of the concerns about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine then creating mistrust in all of the vaccines, I'm sure it has played a factor to some degree. But I did look in that first week that J&J um, &J was back in terms of availability. The federally supported sites run by FEMA, we've got one here in Tampa, started offering J&J again. And I looked at the numbers of people who showed up that day, how many people got Johnson & Johnson versus Pfizer, a first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. It was pretty split. Um, so, you know, about half the people still wanted the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I know people personally that in the recent weeks have opted for Johnson & Johnson because they still want that one and done experience, not having to go back for a second dose. So I think it might have changed some people, you know, might have caused concern among a, a large group of people. But there are others, you know, I don't think it has completely swayed people from not wanting a vaccine.
We've heard about efforts elsewhere to kind of sweeten the pot for folks who may be on the fence about getting the vaccine. If it's offering them maybe some kind of gift card or there was a story on Morning Edition on Monday about a brewery in Buffalo, New York, that was offering people free pints of beer if they if, if they got their shot at the brewery. Are there any kind of efforts like that in our region? You know, not that I'm aware of yet. I would love to to find that out. I think that would be a, a logical kind of shift in terms of where we're going next is really bringing the vaccines exactly where people are. Maybe it's a brewery or a restaurant and having that kind of incentive. I know even practical things like travel requirements. Florida has, you know, banned vaccine passports and vaccine mandates, but, you know, other states haven't or countries. And there's still this debate about what's going to happen with cruise lines. So I think that is another way that maybe people who didn't want to get it for their health might then be encouraged. Okay, well, I want to go. I want to go on vacation here. I'm visiting family in New York and I want to go to a Yankee game. I guess I'm going to need a vaccine. And that would be, you know, another way to convince maybe not convince but incentivize people who were uh, otherwise reluctant to go ahead and get their shot. So what is the next phase of the vaccine rollout going to look like as we move out of this stage of, of you know getting it to the most vulnerable people, the people who are most susceptible for COVID to basically anyone who wants it? What are, what are the next couple of months going to look like? Yeah, we've already seen some changes just in recent weeks where counties are shutting down their mass vaccination sites, those drive-through clinics, you know, at stadiums or, uh, you know, fairgrounds, Pinellas County, Pasco County, Hernando County, Manatee County, just to name a few that have kind of shut down those big ones or are now just focused on second doses. And um, maybe they have like a Department of Health office or a health clinic that they're still offering uh, vaccines at, but are otherwise kind of leaving it to the, the broader community pharmacies, uh, doctor's offices, you know, places like USF Health, health centers are offering it to patients where you would just come in for another appointment or these, you know, pharmacies just in the last week or so are now allowing you to walk in. You don't even need an appointment. Um, The pop-up events are continuing to happen at churches or, you know, I think it's going to be about making the vaccine access as convenient as possible. A lot of people struggled to access those large drive-through sites or maybe just didn't want to. That didn't seem like a positive experience for them. So if it's going to see your primary care doctor for something else and right in that moment, you can also get your shot or you're going shopping at Publix and can also get your shot or like you said, you know, a brewery where you get a beer at the same time. That's, I think, going to be the shift where we are really just making it as convenient as possible for ordinary folks to get their shots. And then and continuing to do education, continuing to do outreach. Some of the nonprofits I've spoken with said, you know, just because demand is slowing down right now, we are not done. They envision that well into the fall, they're still going to have to be doing these educational engagement efforts to, to get people on board and that it's going to take some time. So there, there have been some, some developments with masks. There have been changes in the guidance from the CDC, but there's also been some executive action from Governor Ron DeSantis about mask mandates in cities and counties. How, how is that playing out here in Florida? In a lot of different ways, it's it's kind of become quite confusing because you, you sort of have to do your research or at least look at signage before you walk into any place. Um, the governor's order removed mask mandates that had been in place in places like the city of Tampa or St. Petersburg, um, because that was issued by a local government. So that kind of just blanket rule that anywhere you'd be inside in Tampa, wear a mask, that's not the case anymore. But it did not 
eliminate it for school districts. So school districts can make up their own mind. I think we've seen a lot of places in our region have uh, continued with their mask mandates in schools, but other school districts have decided to lift them. So you got to know, you know, what's going on in my county, county owned buildings, if the county decided to keep theirs in place would still require masks. So like a a public library in Hillsborough County, for example, Um, federal buildings like the post office or, you know, President Biden put in a requirement, uh, a mass mandate federally on transit. So if you're riding the bus or taking an Uber or going to the airport, you still need one. And then, of course, businesses have their own discretion and they can decide whether they want to uh, mandate masks. And we're seeing a lot of major companies like Publix, Walmart, Disney, uh, Disney World or movie theaters like AMC. They're still continuing to have these mask mandates. And you usually see signs on the door, you know, letting people know in this facility you have to have one. I think generally we've seen a lot of relaxing where the employees aren't enforcing them to the level that they used to, especially in restaurants and bars, but they are still in place in a lot of areas. All right. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Health News Florida reporter Stephanie Colombini. You can find her reporting on vaccine access at healthnewsflorida.org. You're listening to Florida Matters. The conversation continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Today we're talking about vaccine rollout in Florida and efforts to make sure minority communities get their shot. That issue is top of mind for Dr. Kevin Sneed. He's dean of the University of South Florida's College of Pharmacy. We talked via Zoom about his work. Tell me a little bit about some of the efforts that you've been involved in, in terms of uh, reaching people or communities that might have uh, hesitancy in terms of uh, receiving the COVID vaccines. Well, beginning in June of last year, so we're talking June of uh, 2020, I began reaching out to many people here in, in, in the Tampa Bay area, primarily, primarily in the African-American and Latino communities, really just educating via uh, Zoom, uh, you know, uh, video conference just about COVID in general, uh, number one. Number two, we were anticipating that we were very likely to have some uh, clinical trials for the vaccines here in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, through our work with WeCare, we had already anticipated that people would probably be very hesitant to even participate in a clinical trial uh, with the vaccines. So we preemptively began talking about the dangers of COVID-19 and then more importantly, we began laying the groundwork for the vaccines. But what that wound up doing, it led to a broader community conversation that continued on. So uh, I, at this point, my, myself and my, my uh, We Care team here and our community partner, ReachUp, uh, we've probably done somewhere between 70 and 80 uh, video conference community presentations around COVID with a Q&A session. We've, and we've done, I mean, we've canvassed a lot, and not only here in the Tampa Bay area, but it went statewide and in some cases even national. Why was it important to to kind of do that groundwork, you know, back last summer before, while the, the clinical trials for the vaccines that we have now were still, were still going on before the vaccine rollout started? Why was it, why, why did you kind of want to get a running start with in terms of educating people about the vaccines and also the, the dangers of COVID itself? 
Well, again, the uh, organization I'm executive director of called WeCare, and that's an acronym that stands for Work Group Enhancing Community Advocacy and Research Engagement. Uh, this was a group that we were already out uh, communicating with the community about the importance of engaging in clinical research. By and large, most clinical trials typically only have anywhere from 1% to 3% of African Americans uh, participating in the clinical trial overall, and um, uh, maybe a, a little bit higher participation rate from Hispanic, but, uh, but not much higher. So we already had the framework and the community relationships to begin the process of, of just talking about clinical research overall, knowing that like, the Tuskegee experiment has uh, created profound mistrust uh, especially in the African-American community, and then overall, just the mistrust of government in general. So um, uh, th that's really where we started, and that's why we started doing it long before anyone even knew it would become a problem. What kind of conversations, what kind of work have you done to, to help people overcome that mistrust? Well, the first thing we've done is really have open and honest and transparent conversations around what the SARS-CoV-2 virus even is. Uh, making sure that people understood that it was far more than just the flu, far different than the flu. Uh, we were trying to overcome an enormous amount of uh, misinformation that continues even today. And then making sure that we understood or, or that people in the community understood exactly what the vaccines were, uh, what the intention was for why we want to vaccinate people. And then also, you know, well, people want to know if I go through it, what, what's going to happen to me? Uh, why is it uh, under an emergency use authorization? Why is it not FDA approved? What would be the long-term benefit? How can you even know that if it's only been out for, you know, six months? I mean, these questions that people were having out in the community were things that we were well-equipped to answer. And that's why we did it. What has, uh, what have been the, the challenges in terms of delivering that, that message to these communities that might feel hesitant about getting the vaccine? Well, the overwhelming uh, challenge, the largest challenge overall, has just been uh, overcoming misinformation from social media. Someone can put out incorrect information or just outright um, uh, just inaccuracies. I don't want to go to the L word necessarily. That can that can circle the globe in, in, in a matter of, of seconds. And people are reviewing it and they're sharing this information with each other. And so the number one thing, the number one challenge was uh, overcoming misinformation. And then number two, uh, the biggest challenge really was, was um, establishing that contact with enough people at a given time. And that's why we engaged many of our clergy. Uh, we began talking to uh, faith-based organizations, uh, chart large church groups, community-based organizations, nonprofits. I mean, we've talked to a lot of people. And then number three, having a trusted partner in the community like our, again, Reach Up Incorporated, our, our nonprofit partner. Uh, has really opened doors for trust. Uh, we needed to not only say that we have the credentials to share this information with you, but we had someone that can advocate for us in, in terms of uh, knowing that we are genuinely inter uh, interested in, in their outcome and their well-being and not just trying to sell them or convince them of something. So what have you learned through this experience that maybe you can apply to different health challenges, health issues in uh, in minority communities, not just COVID, but maybe maybe other things down the line. Well, I can tell you right now. What, uh, one thing that we did learn, the biggest thing we learned, was that we care w was critically important long before COVID nineteen came in uh, came along. Uh, we had already established groundwork in the communities. Uh, we already had a, a network of people who we have worked diligently for years to build trust with. Moving forward, I think we have hopefully we're, we're continuing to build that trust in a network of people. 
and people are beginning to understand really the importance of, of engaging in clinical research overall, uh, whatever that might be. It doesn't always have to be a clinical trial with a medication. Uh, it could be um, music therapy, you know, around dementia, one of our partners here at USF Health uh, that we've been uh, engaging with. Uh, there's a lot of different things that go on that we want to help the community engage with, engage with because when they are engaged and they can see and touch and feel the process themselves, uh, they're much more likely to participate and then trust it and then even advocate it with their friends and families and, and other people they, uh, they interact with. You mentioned clinical trials, and I know USF and, and Tampa General have been involved in a trial of the Novavax COVID vaccine. Uh, how, how are those trials going? Yes, I, I've been a listed co-investigator for that trial. I think the trials have gone very well. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe we're in the, in the phase of, of um, ramping down. But once again, it did kind of underscore exactly why it's important to reach out to the African-American and, and uh, Latino communities or just communities of color, uh, socioeconomically deprived their areas and underserved areas, uh, primarily because uh, we began to identify what the real barriers are. Sometimes the barrier was not that they were mistrusting of being in a clinical trial. Uh, sometimes the, the barrier was being able to take off work for three hours to be able to participate and then return back and the number of times that we would want someone to uh, go through to complete the trial. And these are uh, very valuable learning lessons that all of us are learning. And then we'll communicate that back with additional with companies in the future and find additional ways that maybe possibly we can overcome that moving forward. You mentioned those barriers. And I think also to, um, you know, people who've received the vaccine, I think about my own experience where, you know, the day after I felt felt pretty under the weather. And I know that's the case for a lot of folks you know, I was able to, to rest and take a day off work, but not everybody can do that. Uh, and so I imagine that's also maybe a challenge or an obstacle for folks in terms of uh, a vaccine hesitancy or just getting people to get the vaccine because not everybody can afford to do that. Uh, well, I think you bring up a very important point on two on two points. Number one, uh, just educating people what to expect you know, if they participate in the, in the, in the research. And, and again, being very open, honest, and transparent about uh, what the adverse effects may mean. It doesn't mean you're getting sick. Uh, it's temporary. And, and and even more importantly, letting people know that, that the, the antibodies you're going to get from the vaccine are going to protect you against a real illness that can be very uh, dangerous for your health, number one. But then number two, maybe moving forward, we need to come up with new strategies on how we're going to do that clinical research. Maybe we need to have um, hours on the weekend. Maybe we need to have, um, you know, maybe we need to target various communities and, 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 and try and find ways to arrive and, and meet them on their turf instead of expecting them to take off work and, and, and use their resources to travel to us. I mean, there's a whole host of areas that we probably can improve on. And, uh, but I'm pretty confident that not only here at USF Health, but overall, the, the research community across the country is really taking COVID-19 to learn a, a new and better way to move forward with uh, clinical research. What do you think needs to change in terms of the of the vaccine rollout as we kind of move into this new phase where where shots are available almost anywhere where you can walk into a Publix or a, a pharmacy now and 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 get it get a shot where you're not having to line up at some you know, some mass site like the like the Greyhound track here in Tampa and also keeping in mind the Biden administration has set this goal of of getting at least one dose to 70% of the adult population by, by the 4th of July. What, what do you think needs to change in the, in the next two months to, to get to that goal here in the U.S.? So, you know, we have to get into the parts of communities that normally people don't go to and travel to. 
and we have to identify and, 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 and get trusted partners in there to communicate with them. And we're engaged in a project even right now that we're trying to put together with our USF libraries where we, we would use our community health workers to go into various parts of communities that we normally don't go into and ask a very simple question. Do you want to receive the vaccine? Yes or no. If they say, yes, indeed, I do want to, but I don't have time or don't have the means to be able to get to a location. Well, that's where mobile strategies come in and we need to find a way to get to them. And we're well prepared here at USFL to accommodate that. But then number two, if we find out, no, I don't want the vaccine, well, now that identifies an opportunity for additional education, where again, we can uh, deploy someone like myself or other people in that area uh, to really try and help people understand the benefit of getting vaccinated, uh, overcome their fears of, of uh, and, and mistrust and misgivings of the system overall. But these are some strategies, again, that we're working on right now. But one way or the other, we have to meet people where they are. We have to meet them where they are, both emotionally, uh, cognitively, and physically. We have to meet them uh, where they are so that we can help them to overcome some of these challenges and, and, and not be negatively impacted by what is continuing to be a very emerging and dangerous virus. All right, Dr. Sneed, I think that's it for my questions. Anything else you'd like to add before we uh, wrap up? I think you allowed me to cover the most important things, I guess, for the given topic right now. Um, I think the mo another very important thing I, I typically do when I'm talking to the public is helping people understand we need to shut down the transmission as much as possible. You know, when, I, when, I, when I've hit on some of the top numbers that people probably were not aware of in the, in the way of telling them that, you know, right now, you know, one in 10 Americans have, have been infected by this particular virus. One out of every 580 Americans has, has, uh, has died from the virus. You know, when we start talking about, you know, one in three people are probably going to have long-term neurological or psychological effects if they become infected, or that right now, the people driving the pandemic right now are between the age of 20 and 49, that, that, that kind of younger group that's in that essential worker group or the really just a community of people that are, that are much more social in terms of wanting to get out into the public. Um, they're continuing to keep this pandemic going almost exclusively right now. And so I think communicating the long-term uh, harm and then uh, uh, really showing the long-term benefit of getting vaccinated uh, is going to require a little bit more energy, I think, than we've been able to put out thus far because all of our energy up until now has been thrust in the area of making sure that people 65 and above were the ones that were being vaccinated. And that was and it was well warranted because 40% of the deaths were coming, even though they were only making up 10% of the people infected at one point in time during the pandemic. And so, you know, the spectrum between uh, I got infected and I lived or you might die. Well, younger people, while no, they don't have a death rate, we don't want uh, the array of things that will exist between those two extremes to occur because there can be long-term benefit. And I'm even beginning to wonder if there might be uh, potential harm in terms of national security and other components if indeed we have a large number of people in that younger population that continue to be infected and have these cognitive or even physical um, declines in terms of lung capacity and other things that we would be required for them to serve uh, serve our country in the way that we need them. Yeah, you hear about some of the long-term effects, you know, in terms of breathing, you know, I've heard about ringing in the ears, people with psychotic episodes. I mean, there's so much still that we don't know about COVID and about its long-term effects. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of the, that's going to be the key as we kind of move into the next phase, hopefully toward the end, an end phase of, of, of this pandemic, at least in the U.S. 
Absolutely. Again, the research is very clear. And I'm hoping that we we don't wake up around Thanksgiving and find out that we've just had an enormous amount of people, again, potentially one out of every three people infected uh, with these psychological and neurological uh, deficits uh, because of the infection. Again, we're not talking about people that were very sick and in the ICU. We're talking about people that probably had pretty mild infection, but then they had the avalanche of of symptoms that came onto them um, a month or two, even after they got over the infection. Dr. Sneed, thanks so much for joining us today. We, we appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. Dr. Kevin Sneed is Dean of USF's College of Pharmacy. You can find more on the vaccine rollout in Florida, including a county-by-county county guide on where to get a shot at WUSFnews.org. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week.